Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I am a science communicator and instructor at McMaster University. I am joined today by Kat Arney, a geneticist, science communicator, and author whose book is Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution, and the Science of Life. This book is a tour through the science, the history, the social effects of science as a disease and a biological phenomenon, and I'm really excited to dig in to some of these questions today. Kat, thank you so much for speaking with me about the book. Thank you very much for having me. I'd love to start by uh, talking about this title, Rebel Cell. What does that mean? So when I started writing this book, I thought my first book actually was uh, all about genetics. It was called Herding Hemingway's Cats, and it was sort of a, a tour of how our genes work. And then for this book, I wanted I knew for a long time I wanted to write a book about kind of cancer, what cancer is, where it came from, where it's going. And I thought it was going to pretty much be a lot about the genetics. That's what I know about. Uh, and there's lots and lots of stuff going on in cancer genetics. And the original title actually was, um, it was Selfish Monsters. So this is, uh, Rebel Cell is the, is the second title. The first title, mm-hmm. Selfish Monsters, it refers back to this idea that Richard Goldschmidt, the evolutionary biologist, came up with of the idea that uh, during the Cambrian explosion way, way back, millions and millions and millions of years ago, when there was this time when loads of different species were all evolving at the same time and just trying stuff out and messing up their genetics and doing all this stuff. And this idea that cancers are kind of selfish monsters, they're evolving within us, they're genetically changing, they're genetically diverse, and they're trying out all this evolutionary stuff. And so that was kind of the original idea. And then the more I started writing the book, I realized that actually, we focus almost too much on the genetics of cancer cells themselves. And we forget that cancer is a disease that emerges out of our bodies, it emerges Mm. from our tissues. And I was going back through some quite old ideas about understanding the body as societies of cells within our tissues with with rules and norms and and behaviors and the idea that cancers are cheating cells or rebellious cells that ignore or, or break the rules of this cellular society and start growing out of control. So it moved from this very much the focus on the the evolution and the genetics, which I still do go into in quite a lot of detail, but to this idea of cancer as something that starts from us, but as a cellular rebellion within our tissues, which I think is kind of a new way hmm. really for the public of thinking about it. Right. I feel like so much of uh, biology and science in recent years, medicine has focused on kind of taking a... Uh, tissue eye or cellular eye or bacterial eyed view of the processes going on in our bodies. We like to think that we, you know, the person in the brain is the only thing happening, but, um, you know, work on the, whether the gut microbiome or you're talking about cancer forces us to reckon with the fact that our bodies are so much more than just the conscious us that are living within them. There are, as you say, societies living uh, of cells or otherwise living within us that we are merely the host of. Is that kind of the the type of angle that you're trying to get at here? 
Yeah, I really wanted to get away from the, it's a very genetically reductionist view that Mm. we've come to think of cancer, particularly in recent years, since the genetic revolution, since we could take tiny samples of cells and look at thousands and thousands of genes and genetic variations and genetic mutations. And we've become very focused on almost that shopping list of genetic alterations in cancer cells. And forgotten to step back and realize that cancer starts from us. It is part of us. It is within our own bodies. It is nourished by the food that we eat. It is subject to our own biological clocks, the soup of hormones within the body. And I, I sort of want to almost re, uh, I guess, recapture the word holistic here. It's sort of been used a lot in the um, alternative medicine world. It's become quite a, I think, sort of a a woo-woo kind of word. Mm. But to reclaim that word holistic for thinking about cancer as a disease of tissue and as a disease of the body, not as just this separate pocket of genetically weird cells that we can just target, because it doesn't really Mm. work like that. Right. Maybe we can talk a little bit about one thing uh, that I love about your book is that it takes a very uh, historically informed perspective. I'm a historian of science, so that that's obviously appealing to me. Um, I, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about the uh, history of cancer within our species. I think there is maybe um, a misconception that uh, cancer is a fairly modern or or new disease, or because it is so prevalent in people of old age, you need to live to a certain point for cancer to even be a problem in many people's lives, though of course it affects people of all ages, that the people in the past who didn't live as long, um, it was not as, as, as prevalent. But as you showed, that's not quite the case. So I'm wondering if you say a bit about how we understand kind of the long history of this disease as being part of our species, not to mention other species, which we can talk about later. Later, but um, the long history of this in our species and how we can study using the, I don't know, the fossil evidence or, or other mechanisms, yeah, how this dates back in our lineage. This was definitely something I wanted to really get across in the book, that cancer is not just a human disease and it's not just a modern disease. And, you know, these two things are tied together, that it really reveals that cancer is a deep biological phenomenon. And wherever you have multicellularity, you have cancer. And wherever you have evolution, you have cancer. So not just back in the history of our species, but everywhere you look across the tree of life, we find examples of cancer. There are very, very few exceptions. Uh, One is comb jellyfish. No extant known examples of cancer there. And also sponges seem to be weirdly resistant to cancer. Who knows why? Very interesting. Um, (laughs) But this goes deep, deep back into time. So the very week that my book came out in the UK in August, there was an announcement that uh, a bone tumor, an osteosarcoma, had been found in a 77 million year old dinosaur fossil. And basically, wherever we look, we find cancer. And this is incredibly true in human populations. Now, every so often there are papers that say, well, you know, yes, we do find evidence of cancer in fossil remains of humans, uh, in ancient remains, in, in graveyards and all sorts of places, in mummies. We find evidence of cancer, but we don't find very many. Therefore, cancer was incredibly rare. And the argument I make is like, we don't know. You know, <laughs> you don't dig out beautifully aged, matched series, epidemiologically correct series of human <laughs> remains out of the ground. You kind of, you get what you get. And, um, And I think the more that people start looking for evidence of cancer in ancient populations all over the world, 
the more they find. It's really hard to know how prevalent it was because if you have, you know, if you have three examples of cancer, say in a graveyard of a hundred remains, you don't know what proportion those cancers are of the entire population. You don't know exactly what the age structure of the population was. You can have a good guess, but you you don't know. And I think the fact that we do find cancers, that we do find cancers, particularly rare cancers of childhood, we can find in, in ancient remains, suggests that this disease has always been with us. And we do know that the risk does increase significantly as we get older. So this is a separate and interesting question about why we are actually quite resistant to cancer up until our, our sixth or seventh decade of life. Mm. And in the past, yeah, it was rare that people would live for that long. But the fact that we do find examples of cancer, we find examples of rare cancer, the more we look for them, the more we find. This disease has always been with us. It is not purely modern. It's not purely human. There are things we do in our modern lives that don't help. And again, you know, maybe we can talk about that. But it is it is not something that we have solely wrought upon ourselves with our, our terrible modern lifestyles. It's a, a glitch of biology going way, way, way back into deep evolutionary time. Right. I mean, is it fair to say that it's just a feature of any system that is based on, you know, cellular reproduction uh, will have this as a, maybe not in every single species, as you mentioned, but it's just once we have kind of multicellular life, once we have a system of uh, mitosis or hum- growth of organisms that work in the way that we do, then the um, uncontrolled or ra- crazy re- rebellious uh, growth of cells is just a, is a feature, uh, not a bug. And so it's it's across every species, just something that we have to contend with. Would you say that that's a, a fair framing of it? Exactly. The way I refer to it in the book is as it's the price of life. Like if right. we are multicellular, so the kind of the, the pact of multicellularity hmm. is that cells live in multicellular organisms and in this kind of multicellular society. And that brings advantages. And it's been hugely advantageous in evolutionary terms. If you can band your cells together, you can be bigger, you can eat more, you can move further, you can specialize your cells to do different things. You can, you know, have uh, the distributed cost of goods within the organism, all this kind of stuff. And this is why multicellular life has evolved. And once you get to that point where you have cells that are effectively the the soma, the body, that don't get passed on to the next generation, that's the job of specialized germ cells, of sex cells. And then you have the rest of the body that's there to kind of, you know, get you through life and get your germ cells onto the next generation. Then you have to start to maintain this this pact of like, okay, these cells that are in the body bit need to do the job they're meant to do. They need to not reproduce when they're not meant to. They need to die when they should. They need to not pollute the environment around them and not take more resources than they need. This is what makes societies work. And this is what makes the cellular society work. And so as soon as you have those rules, which are basically laid down genetically, they're controlled by genes, then as soon as cells have genetic changes, they can start to break the rules. And so once you have a society of cells that are doing the right thing, then cheats can emerge. And we see this even in really, really simple biological systems. And one of the examples I talk about in the book is these um, sort of free-living amoebas called Dictyostelium. They're sort of a, a, sometimes classified as a slime mold, but they're kind of a slimy amoeba. 
And normally they live as single cells and they just live around in the soil. But when they run low on food, they send out signals and they all clump together to make this sort of proto-multicellular organism. It's a, a little slug. And this slug crawls away in search of more food and a better life. And when it's found a good place, it sends up this little stalk and it sends a, a sort of spore thing on top. And then spores get released, effectively cells get released, poof, off they go in search of better food, a better life. But that means that some of these amoebas will contribute to the stalk and will die. They will not live on. Their genes will not perpetuate. They've effectively like sacrificed themselves for this proto-body. Mm. And there's a, a researcher called Gad Shulsky who realized that there are certain genetic mutations in any of a hundred different genes that make it more likely that an amoeba is going to end up in the spore and go off and and be able to kind of live continue, live forever. So there are genetic changes that make these amoebas cheat, and that's amoebas. And then you can look at other systems. There are genetic changes that make organisms that make cells more likely to cheat the cells around them. And mm. this is like not even cancer. This is just the price of multicellularity. Mm. And then in more complex bodies, that does lead to cancer. And we can see cancers in incredibly simple organisms. There's a, an organism called a hydra that's basically uh, three different types of cells. It's a tube with tentacles. These things are tiny. They mm. just live in the water. And there's examples of uh, completely naturally occurring tumors in something as simple as a hydra. Hmm. And so like, this is, this is a deep, deep biological process. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it leads one to think not only of cancer or multicellularity as this pact between different bundles of cells, but just appreciating that when we, I mean, if we do go back far enough, you talk about LUCA, L-U-C-A, last universal common ancestor, you know, ultimately bodies, uh, organisms at all are just this, uh, yeah, a, a collection of little sub-organisms, sub-little societies that decided to band together for reasons of, I don't know, efficiency or space saving or entropy, decided to configure and so, well, didn't decide, but uh, evolved were, to configure. Evolved, <laughs> evolved, yeah. No, no conscious decision, but evolved to configure in certain ways. And then they grouped together and some of those things turned into organs and then some of those things turned into brains. And then some of them evolved, uh, you know, bipedalism and now here we are um and it, it really does kind of warp your your view of what we are as people you don't want to spend too much time staring in the mirror thinking about that because uh, it can make you a little bit dizzy mm. um but uh returning to humans for a second we were talking about this history of cancer was was it always understood at what point did we gain the understanding uh that this is a, a cellular process about uh, unmitigated uh, cellular uh, reproduction that that's what that that's what cancer is like uncontrolled um cell division um at what point in our history as a species of understanding this disease did we understand it in that way and maybe before that how did i don't know across different societies or different cultures or different eras people conceptualize this kind of universal uh fact of human life so I think the the time point I really put on it is basically the the mid to late 19th century which is sort of the 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 men with the microscopes mostly Germans mostly men hmm. um staring at things down microscopes and being able to see cells and being able to also start to see chromosomes so you have um people discovering 
chromosomes within cells. You have people like Hanselman and Bovary discovering that um, that cancer cells seem to have messed up what they called chromosomes. Uh, these kind of little, you know, that we now know are the DNA inside cells, and it was sort of really prescient, saying like, "Oh, these cells that look wrong, this stuff inside them looks wrong. Maybe this is the cause." And they start to, from that point kind of tie the idea that this genetic material, they didn't know it was the genetic material then, but this idea of kind of something has gone wrong within these cells that's turning them into cancer cells. And sort of before that, there were there were lots of ideas. There's all sorts of, um, and again, back to the Greek philosophers, the ideas of humors and cancers being caused by imbalance in your humors, uh, plagues from the gods, uh, punishment for all sorts of things. And we see that reflected, I think, a bit today in the idea that, you know, you've somehow brought your cancer on you from some terrible mm. lifestyle or toxic mm-hmm. modern lifestyle, which, um, you know, I don't think is true based on what we know about cancer being an ancient biological phenomenon. Um but yeah, I think stuff really starts to get going in the in the 19th century, being able to look at cancer cells. Mm-hmm. We don't really start to understand what's driving these cells to multiply out of control, really, until sort of the, the middle of the 20th century, really. And there's one of the things I found hard in the book to tie together was all these parallel strands of trying to understand cancer. So you have people looking at how cancers are inherited through families. You have people looking at cancers that are caused by viruses, particularly in animals, and and trying to say, well, maybe all human cancers are caused by viruses. And we now know that there's a number of cancers that are particularly, um, the, the risk is significantly increased by certain viruses. I'm thinking of things like human papillomavirus and, and cervical cancer. But we don't see to the same extent viruses that cause cancer. But there was a big thing in the 60s where everyone was like, it's viruses. We've just got to find the viruses, get rid of the viruses, and then we'll cure cancer. I'm like, uh, no, didn't work. Um, and then at the same time, you have all these people finding um, finding genes that are faults in genes that are driving cells to multiply out of control. So trying to tie all of this stuff together mm-hmm. about the heredity, what's going on with the viruses, what's going on with the genetic changes, it, it doesn't really all start to come together, I don't think, probably till like the, the 1960s or 70s. And so mm-hmm. that was that was a really interesting story to, to try and bring together because now we have quite a sophisticated understanding of the Mm. genetics involved in cancer, starting to understand the tissue biology, understanding the heredity, understanding how genetic variations we inherit alter our risk of different types of cancer, starting to understand how specific changes that are picked up during life influence cancer cells and, and make them grow out of control. So you know, I think it's probably maybe only in the past like 40 years that we've really right. got everything working together. Yeah, it's interesting you spoke about this idea of the war on cancer. Uh, famously, Richard Nixon announced that as a policy strategy. Barack Obama tasked Joe Biden with uh, some of this, the continuation of the this idea of a war on cancer. Um, I mean, I guess... Given the framing that we've discussed so far, that you know this is the this is the price we pay for multicellularity, is the war on cancer? Is this idea, you know, is this a winnable war? What is the end game here? I suppose we can develop more and more sophisticated understandings of the genetics involved, of the the the, the tissue processes involved, of the social factors that might lead to cancer. But is there an idea that this is 
eradicatable? Um, or is this just a permanent feature of life that we will have to get better and better at managing? But ultimately, you know, cellular division will always win. Yeah, basically that. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, when I looked at the war on cancer, it's like you can't declare war on a biological <laughs> right. concept. Like, you you right. may as well try and declare war on evolution or war sure. on multicellularity because right. that's what you're up against. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, becoming really clear to me that even if you lived like the most perfect, perfect, healthy life, you know, absolutely did everything right, there would still be a chance that cancer would develop because it is at some level a biological inevitability that damaged cells can emerge as cheats in tissues, whether that's humans or animals or, or whatever system. So, you know, it, cancer will always be with us. What we can then decide is what do we do about it? And so where I get to particularly in the end of the book is really challenging some of our ideas about how we treat particularly advanced cancers. And I do really want to stress that when I was writing this book, I did not want to make it sound like, oh, we've made no progress, no treatments work. It's all just a waste of time. So like we do know how to successfully treat many, many cancers. So, you know, half of all people diagnosed with cancer will survive for at least 10 years after their diagnosis. And that's a figure that's doubled in my own lifetime. So, you know, we are making progress. We are making a lot of progress here. But that still means that there's half of all cancers that we do not manage to treat even for that mm -hmm. length of time. So what are we doing wrong? What should we be doing differently? And it's mm -hmm. particularly the way that we treat, I think, advanced cancers that have started to evolve resistance to treatment that have spread through the body, finding some new strategies for treating mm -hmm. those based on ideas of ecology and evolution that I talk about a, a lot in the book, these new right. evolutionary strategies. So not thinking about... Um, the way we think about maybe, you know, like get rid of it, eradicate, nuke it from orbit, uh, mm. you know, napalm the whole thing. Um, huh. These ideas of almost um, balancing populations of cells, tending them for, for long control rather than trying to eradicate. And then if you do want to think about what does a cure for these types of cancer look like, starting to think about it in terms of extinction, of population extinction, of trying to, you know, extinguish these populations of cells? How do we make extinction events happen within the body? And that's going to be a complex combination of different drugs, right. different timings, different approaches, understanding really what's the, the mix of cellular populations within this cancer. How do we steer them? How do we uh, you know, splat them? What do we do with them? So it, it is a much more sophisticated approach, but the, the genetics, the research is all, I think, sending us down that road. And I think it's incredibly exciting. Right. But as you say in the book, you know, it might be nice to have slogans for fundraising purposes. The idea of a war on cancer or, or research agencies that declare that they're going to beat cancer. It's probably better for PR, even though in reality, like as you described, these evolutionary approaches, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's much more sophisticated as any good science is. It probably any, any, any true, um, you know, sophisticated medical approach probably does not best lend itself well to a pithy uh, banner that you could fly on a blimp. But nevertheless, is the is the way to go. Yeah, I, um, I spent, well, I was going to say, yeah. I spent 12 years working for a major cancer charity. I spent 12 years at Cancer Research UK in the comms right. team. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about cure of beating cancer and, and this idea like, well, 
what does a cure look like? And we've we've been really seduced by this narrative of finding the cure for cancer. Right. And this popular conception that like there will be the cure, i.e. one cure, that it will be, you know, a drug, a treatment, one treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's like that really, really isn't. And we've just got to stop talking and thinking like that. Right. That, you know, that actually in some cases long term control may be a far more effective strategy, a far right. kinder strategy. Uh, and then thinking about, you know, different ways of manipulating the populations of cancer cells. But yeah, it's not pithy. It's not the cure. Um, (laughs) You know, saying we will, uh, we will beat cancer is much better than saying, well, you know, we will just keep you going for ages with it. And then you live long enough to die of something else. That's not really the the great slogan that you want. But even when we think about some other, uh, for instance, diabetes, you know, people are, uh, need to inject themselves with insulin, but they can live quite a long time. That's a sustainable uh, lifestyle, but that's a good example of, you know, have, are you beating, are you fighting a war? Like this, there's, we don't, we don't have for other diseases. I feel like the same notion of this, it's a fight, it's a battle, which itself has a weird kind of uh, connotation of like, if you fight hard enough, then you can somehow rid yourself of cancer if you get it, which is uh wrong to to say the least i Um, find that so offensive it's so unbelievably offensive to patients um and their families to to imply that if someone lost their fight with cancer it's because they didn't fight hard enough it's it's incredibly offensive is Um, there a reason in particular why cancer has this notion associated with it is it is there is there something in the history there that people use this type of language why is it unique in that regard well, I, th- I think it's interesting. I certainly think, like you know, Nixon's war on cancer uh, yeah. was a big part of it. You know, because Nixon was looking for a war that he could win. It was just mired in Vietnam, <laughs> and um, it's coming off the back of the space race and and the Apollo mission to the moon. You know, this is this is big projects, big ambitious yeah. things. We're going to declare war on this, and <laughs> sure. you know, it's it's not the dumbest idea a politician's ever had, but it was pretty dumb, I think, um, because it, it did really frame things as a war. And certainly when I, when I was at Cancer Research UK, we had a lot of discussions about the language that we used. And you can sort of almost like, oh, well, we've got this idea of, you know, it's a conceptual battle and, and as society, we are battling it, but you don't want to imply that people are battling it. It's just very confusing, really. Right. Um, but yeah, certainly for a very long time, I think a lot of the language did really come out of America in in the, the 60s mm. and 70s and mm-hmm. um, particularly sort of a lot of the, the fundraising that went on around there, right. um, that sort of idea that, that this was a war that could be won if you could just throw enough money and enough brains at it, which mm. I think is, uh, you know, is the politician's way of solving things. But this right. is not a political problem. It's a biological problem. Yeah. it's um, it, th- That being said, it is definitely, I, I think a lot of people maybe are um, tend to underestimate just how much progress we have made in the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, across many types of cancers, the amount of medical research and uh, the, the, the lifespans that people can expect uh, is pretty extraordinary. And the understanding that people have, the pre- preventative steps they're able to take is definitely nothing to, uh, to scoff at at all. So while, of course, the, you know, the war has not been won, so to speak, uh, many of the, the uh, I don't know, the, the smaller fronts have been fought valiantly. And we have certainly moved the, 
I don't even know what to call it. The uh, Maginot line. Is that something from World War One? Uh, we've we, moved, we, moved the needle, I suppose. <laughs> move, move the needle. Let's end the war metaphors. We've uh, <laughs> certainly moved the needle. Is there anything that stands out to you in particular as worthy of uh, celebration or that is maybe underappreciated in the realm of uh, either prevention, uh, treatment, or indeed cure? And there's there's lots of things that are exciting and interesting. I mean, there's a few examples of treatments, I think, that a drug called Gleevec or Imatinib, um, a drug called Gleevec or Imatinib, which is used to treat certain types of leukemia, I think is, I would say that it's arguably the most successful cancer drug of all time. And this was a real poster child for the idea of treating cancer by finding a molecular fault in the cancer. And so we know that this type of leukemia is driven by a, uh, when two genes basically get cut and pasted together, and they make this faulty molecule that drives the blood cells to multiply out of control. And so Gleevec was a drug that was invented to lock into this faulty molecule, stop it from working, stops the cancer cells from multiplying. And it was absolutely transformative. I think it is, it's an incredible example of this approach, this, this targeted therapy approach working. Mm. Problem is, it misled everyone to thinking that if we could just find the drugs for all the other mm. cancers, we would be able to cure all the other cancers. And like this type of leukemia is, it's quite weird. It doesn't evolve very much. It's very sensitive to the drug. It, it sort of did send us down a road of thinking that if we could just replicate that success, we'd be able to, to beat all cancers. Mm. So, you know, it was a success, but also a bit of a red herring. I think certainly in children's cancers, there's been incredible progress, really amazing. I was um, recently doing an interview with uh, Jim Downing, who's the CEO of St. Jude's Research uh, Hospital. And just, you know, in his career, the change that has happened in survival from many types of children's cancer, I think is absolutely incredible. But at the same time, these treatments come with side effects, with long-term side effects that the children treated with these, these treatments that will survive their cancer are potentially going to have to live decades of their lives with the side effects. So, you know, it's we're not there yet. And there are some cancers we know, for example, testicular cancer. 99% of men will survive testicular cancer, even when mm -hmm. it's advanced. It's uniquely right. sensitive to treatment. And we don't quite know why. Um, we've made progress in finding cancers early, in treating particularly early stage cancers, early stage breast cancers and bowel cancers. You know, survival really has gone up. So yeah, progress has definitely been made, but there are some cancer types and you know, late stage cancer where the outlook, I, I don't genuinely think has changed that much. And some of these amazing, expensive, new targeted therapies that are being touted in the media as, you know, holy grails, magic bullets, miracle cures, they increase survival by months. In some cases, you know, single digit years, but mostly by months, in some cases, weeks. And, and those are not cures but we're being told right. oh yeah this is this is the way hmm. um so i think looking at these kinds of treatments and saying right these are not going to get us this is, these are not going to move the needle all the way um they're moving the needle a little bit but we we need to think of something better and think of something different hmm. we've been kind of hinting throughout this conversation and you speak quite a lot in the book about um the fact that many people have some pretty wacky ideas about what 
causes cancer, about, I don't know, their their home remedies or their, you know, some people can get quite eccentric with the things that you should or should not do or should or should not eat. You mentioned that even, you know, the healthiest people in the world, some of them uh, end up um, getting or indeed dying of cancer anyway. And some people who smoke uh, cigarettes on the daily end up doing just fine. Obviously, on average, that is not the case. But still, so much of this is unpredictable and subject to the whims of genetics or even factors that we don't yet understand. And like you said, we need uh, a holistic approach to understand uh, these societies of cells taking place in our bodies. How should people conceptualize this idea of you know, the genetics versus the environment. Um, how how can people square this in their minds when it's when it's so thorny to pick apart, you know, cause and effect across mm. a, a topic like this? So there's, there's a couple of things to unpack there. The first thing I'm going to come at it from a little bit of a tangent, which is that sure. the understanding that although cancer is incredibly common in our population, we know that around one in two people will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lifetime now. And that figure is going up because we are generally the main driver is that we are living much longer. So we're all getting to an age when cancer does become more likely. But on a personal level, cancer is actually incredibly rare. You have trillions and trillions and trillions of cells in your body. They divide billions of times throughout your life. And each one of us may only develop one maybe two cancers in a lifetime. So your inherited genetic makeup does influence that. Like you, you can't change the genetic cards that you're dealt. You can influence how you play them um, through the things that you do and the, the, the habits that you have in your, life, in your lifetime. But an interesting thing, and this was, um, this was the really new stuff that blew my mind, was that discovering that even our normal tissues are a patchwork of mutation. We are just full of mutations and alterations. All our cells, all our tissues are a bit sad by the time we get to middle age. Very few of those cells will become bad. So the question then is like, how do we maintain our tissues? What is working to keep our tissues healthy? And I think we don't entirely know that yet because we don't really understand what keeps us well. We only tend to understand what makes us sick and only focus on cancer cells and, and samples of tumors. We don't really look at healthy tissue because it's healthy. Why would you? But this idea that because cancer is a disease that emerges out of tissues, there are two things that are important. So one is the mutational load that is in your tissues. So that's like how many genetic changes you have. So we know that there are things that cause mutations, things like smoking cigarettes, things like exposure to ultraviolet light from the sun, uh, industrial chemicals, x-rays. Right. These are things that we know damage DNA. And there are big projects going on worldwide to understand what's damaging DNA. How can we spot the scars, the fingerprints of these damaging agents in cancers to understand what really does induce cancers and cause this kind of damage. So if you want to reduce your risk of cancer, reduce your exposure to things that we know damage DNA. But at the same time, the other side of it is about keeping your tissues healthy. Because like I say, we know that many of our cells have mutations, have DNA damage, but only very rarely will a damaged cell actually be able to emerge as a cheating cancer. So we need to understand more about what keeps our tissues healthy. And I think one of the keys here is understanding more about inflammation, 
what causes chronic inflammation? Is this maybe why um, obesity increases the risk of cancers? Because that seems to cause chronic inflammation in the body. Is this why physical activity, why exercise is protective? We know it is protective. We don't really understand why. Is it doing good things? for your tissue environment in the body? What about the things that we eat? What about how much we sleep? What about our body clocks? All the stuff mm. that we don't really understand why we stay well. So I think mm. that's a really interesting area for research. And certainly I, I wouldn't, I've had a few people saying like, oh, well, if, if cancer is just an inevitable biological process, you may as well just like give up and go and just like buy a pack of cigarettes, do whatever you want. It's like, oh no, you do influence your risk. Um, your risk does increase as you get older anyway, biologically, but you definitely can do things to reduce your risk of adding new mutations and disrupting your tissues. So, you know, th think about some of those. Hmm. Yeah, there's a question, I guess, there about, you know, just how paranoid should people be? Should, should you know, is every piece of slightly burnt toast or every piece of, I don't know, red meat or... Uh, x-ray scan at the airport, uh, you know, a cause for alarm, uh, every airplane ride or, I don't know, heated seat, whatever it is, you know, I, I feel like if you could take the radiation, if you could put on glasses that enabled you to see the entire electromagnetic spectrum, you'd never be able to leave the house <laughs> because but, you would be, live in constant fear. Sorry, what were you going to say? Well, no, I, th I, th I think that's a, that is a really interesting view because it, that is sort of a logical conclusion of like, oh no, damaging right. things are everywhere. But also though, on the flip side, it's like, look at the kind of, like all your cells are damaged. Like right. it is the natural consequence of life that you pick up DNA damage and you should marvel at how amazing your body is at repairing it. Because like I said, cancer is rare on a mm. personal level. Like for most of us, our bodies just, you know, keep fighting this stuff off. And it's absolutely incredible. So, you know, certainly don't be, I, I, I definitely, you know, the more I know, the more I have to go, like, my life is for living and I'm not going to be absolutely paranoid. I'm going right. to think about like, what are the big things that we really know about? And they are the things that we know significantly increase the risk of cancer from large epidemiological studies. We already know this stuff. Like we know that it, high exposure to x-rays, cigarette smoking, high exposure to ultraviolet light from the sun, exposure to things that we know are industrial carcinogens. Like The studies already tell us this. Um, there's some kind of noodling around the edges about, oh, what's the exact mechanism? Where do we find these things? What sort of doses and all that kind of stuff? But, you know, we know the big things to avoid and we know the big things to do. You know, don't, don't drink too much, uh, quit smoking if you smoke. Uh, try and exercise, try and eat a healthy diet, try and stay a healthy weight. All these things we already know about from large, large-scale studies. What's interesting is to think about the things that do seem to reduce the risk is why, how do they work, and how can we give them a helping hand? You know, If there is something about that reducing inflammation in the body does reduce the emergence of cancer, well, let's work out then how can we reduce people's inflammation? You know, we don't yet know how to do that safely, how to do that well, or if it makes a difference. But I think that's certainly a really interesting area to look at. You have a chapter in the book called Survival of the Weirdest. Maybe we can zoom into the cellular level view, because as you try to point out, I mean, as we've been talking about this, you know, society of cells level view, once we get down to the idea of thinking 
you know, as a, as a, imagine us standing on some tissue or standing in a cell, things look incredibly weird. Um, you speak about the idea of cancer cells, um, having sex or, or notions that of various types of potentially contagious cancer in some animals and, and just the things, the, the escape routes that cancer cells will take or cells in general to escape either our drugs or the machinations of other, uh, the, the immune system or whatever is trying to get them. They're, they're truly ingenious, devilish little sneaky bastards. Um, I'm wondering if you could say, yeah, a little bit about what does the kind of cancer cell eyed view of cancer look like? This was something that I found so fascinating to think about. And it's really embedding cancer as a, a process of evolution and ecology. Like these cells are almost like individuals of a species in a landscape, in the landscape of the tissue and the landscape of the body. And they are genetically diverse. Like cancer cells don't just stay the same, they pick up new mutations, they pick up new changes. They evolve in response to selective pressures like availability of food, like exposure to drugs, all sorts of things, the predation of the immune system. So these are almost like little animals, organisms within a landscape. And so thinking about them from the perspective of evolution and ecology, like what's this landscape like? What are the pressures? What are these species like? Are they not very genetically diverse, in which case it might be easier to get rid of them if we can you know, find the right, uh, the right levers to push, uh, the right things that will wipe out this population, or are they incredibly genetically diverse and they're going to evolve their way around everything that we can throw at them? So this is a really a new way of thinking about cancers, uh, not just in space within the body and, and the arrangement they have within the tissues, but also in time. I sort of joke like it's not space that's the final frontier in cancer research, it's time. These populations change, they evolve, they're not static. So we need to work out, well, how do we measure that change over time? Like after therapy, how do we look at, at the populations of cells that are left? What's happened? What's the next step in the evolutionary journey that they're likely to take? And so this sort of idea that we think about this from a an evolutionary point of view of a almost like a species point of view. And that ties back to the idea of extinctions. So, you know, to get rid of these populations, we need to know what's in there. We need to know the pressures they're susceptible to and apply those pressures in the right way at the right time to get that population to shrink down to a point where it's no longer sustainable. Mm. And that is, you know, effectively what we could call a cure if you can extinct the population of cancer cells, or just some way of controlling them more like you would control pests in a field or, or you know, control a population of wild animals on an island, you know, hunting them off here, trapping some here, you know, trying to make sure that they don't get out of control, mm. but accepting that, you know, you're never going to get rid of all of them, but you just want to control that population as best right. you can for as long as you can. Right. Yeah. You describe some treatments that involve, like you say, this, um, you know, not, not the, with the not with the goal of full eradication, but taking out some percentage of the population, letting the cancer regrow in some way, and then just kind of doing this continual uh, maintenance, almost like this idea of a controlled burn of a forest. So you don't end up with I don't know, what we have on the West coast of, uh, of, of North America. Um, and that these are, uh, sound like they're extremely promising and, and could be, um, 
an effective way into the future. The view that you are describing here um, might sound new to some people, this evolutionary approach, this ecological approach, thinking of this society of cells. Um, of course, when you read the book, you it becomes very clear that this is not some new age, uh, you know, hokum conception of cancer. This is very much evidence-backed, science-based. But do you view this type of perspective as the way maybe the field um, is moving into the future? Uh, how are researchers on the really cutting edge yeah, conceptualizing what the future of this research looks like, uh, and maybe um, what are some specific, like, promising uh, uh, areas either that you profile in the book, as we talked about one just now, or or, or any others. So this whole sort of the eco evo idea of cancer is right. is really starting to gain traction. Uh, certainly, you know, even a decade ago, people weren't really talking about the concept mm. of cancer evolution or understanding that it was evolving. And we didn't really have the tools to look at it. We didn't have the tools to look at uh, the gen genetic diversity in samples and understand the kind of evolutionary relationships, even between little pockets of cells within the same tumor. We just didn't have the technical resolution to do that. But now we do. We can take samples over time. We can take samples within the space of a tissue and, and you know, really start to get a handle on that. And so that certainly is a really, really exciting area. I will say that, again, when I was researching the book, none of this is staggeringly new. Uh, there's mm. a paper published in the late 70s by mm. someone called Peter Noel, a, a great cancer scientist, who was like, mm, I think that cancers probably evolve resistance to treatment, and this mm. might be a problem. And no one really took it seriously. No one paid any attention to it. There's been a few great voices, uh, a researcher called Mel Greaves, who's been very prominent on this. But really, it's not been, I think, really until the it, within the past decade that it's started to gain traction. Um, you know, scientists really acknowledging it, doctors really acknowledging it, drug companies starting to think about this properly, because, you know, it's, it's a difficult problem. If you admit that all the drugs that you're making and all the drugs that you're trying ultimately will fail at some point, you know, we need to think about new strategies for even just using the drugs that we have. And I think that's exciting as well. It's like, let, let's stop chasing new, new, new targets that are all basically in the same biological space that just increase survival by, by months that just get you a tiny bit further over the line than the last one. Let's expand the biological space of targets and ideas. Let's right. think of ways to use the drugs we have in different combinations, in different timings, based on evolutionary strategies. So I think that kind of thing is, is very exciting. You know, there's whole centers for cancer evolution now being set up. Hmm. So, so this, I think, is the way the way that things are going, and it's really why I wanted to write this book, was to explain to the public that this new way of thinking about cancer is coming. And, you know, here's, here's a way of thinking about it as a biological process and helping people to start getting their heads around it. Well, if they want to get their heads around it and be ahead of the curve, ahead of their peers in understanding the latest in the science, the history, the biology, the medicine, and some interesting, very humorous, often quirks and anecdotes that we didn't want to cover here. We have to leave something to the imagination, but a, uh, stories about testicles of various types <laughs> and of various species. Um, they can they can get the book Rebel Cell. How can they go about finding the book and where can they find information about you? 
So Rebel Cell is out in the UK and some territories now, and it's coming out in the US on the 20th of October. I've got links to places that you can pre-order it or buy it now from rebelcellbook.com. Um, I'm also selling a small number of hardbacks, signed hardbacks, and uh, some book plate stickers. So if you want to, it's very difficult in this current time to go out and sign books and give talks and things like that. So uh, you can order yourself a, a book plate sticker if you like. Um, there's a bit more information about the book, there's a bit more information about about me. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Kat, K-A-T underscore Arnie, A-R-N-E-Y. And I also present a podcast called Genetics Unzipped, where we look at stories from the history of genetics, uh, lots of wonderful stories of all kinds. And we also have interviews with people working on the cutting edge of genetic science. So we've, we've got a couple of cancer-related episodes. We've got some sneaky audio extracts from the book and, uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So uh, you can find us there. That's Genetics Unzipped. Brilliant. Well, I would highly encourage that the uh, listeners check out that podcast as well. But for now, pick up the book Rebel Cell. It's an excellent uh, tour of the past, present, and future of cancer. Kat Arney, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you.